My name is Maximus Decimus Meridius. I am Iron Man. Hello, hello, and welcome back to the Post Credit Podcast. I am your host, Eric Italiano, senior writer at ProBible.com. Today, as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Kate Onder, who you can find writing about video games over at ComicBook.com. Today, we're also joined by our Brandon, Buddy Cats. <laughs> by, you know, by our... Ironically enough, my grandfather's name was Buddy, so it works. We are joined by our pal Brandon Katz, who you can find over at Parrot Analytics. Today we are talking The Last of Us season one finale, episode nine. We're talking about the Oscars, which saw everything everywhere all at once completely dominate in a way that we haven't seen in a long time. But first, we're talking about Quentin Tarantino, our boy. I think he's probably my favorite director of my lifetime. Pulp Fiction is my third favorite film of all time. Yeah, third, third favorite. Uh, it is influenced, like, I remember that movie being the one that made me realize, oh, like, movies can be something kind of fucking crazy. Like, I mm-hmm. like it, 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 Like I was like, wait, things don't have to go in order? What? And that just blew my fucking cat back. So Tarantino for years has been saying that he's only doing 10 films. Depends if you count his work in Grindhouse, if you count Kill Bill 1 and 2 as one film. He claims his next one is his final one. Reports today came out that that he will begin production on it this fall, titled The Movie Critic. It is set in 1970s Hollywood and will likely focus on a female lead. It is possible the story focuses on Pauline Kael, one of the most influential movie critics of all time, whom I've never heard of. Look, I don't know if I buy that Tarantino is going to walk away. I think maybe he'll walk away from traditional film in a sense, but I, and this is based on the fact that he's, a, he said he wants to do a TV show. And B, when you're somebody who has cinema in their soul the way that he does and is so endlessly creative as him, I just can't imagine him shutting it down before he turns 60. I don't know what he plans on doing for the next 20 years or so. Writing books, doing TV shows, documentaries, maybe. But I can't imagine that this is the last moving picture project that we'll see from him. He's already started doing a lot of other stuff. Like he obviously adapted... Once Upon a Time in Hollywood into a book. He seems to really like the idea of writing. He's always been a writer, right? Even before he was directing, he was writing. And uh, I imagine he will continue to write movies regardless one way or the other if he makes them himself. I don't know. But mm-hmm. he will write movies. And then he has an interest in TV. Apparently, have you guys ever watched the show Justified? Uh, yes. He might do some of the reboot ones, right? So they've already shot it. So he's not doing that. But uh, okay. the idea of the show apparently came from him when he was working <laughs> with Timothy Oliphant on Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And he's like, you know, wow. like, what if I he did this? That. And Timothy Oliphant was like, that. fucking all right. I'm going to go talk to the boys <laughs> at FX and we can we can talk about it. And and so I think that's where the, the boys rumor- at FX. Yeah. <laughs> the homies at FX. <laughs> I think that's where the rumor of him being involved more directly kind of came from was probably that. But um, it sounds like he has an interest in still doing things. Now, he has also said in the past, and I think he's leaned away from this in more recent years, but he was like, I'm not totally committed to 10 and done. If an 11th movie comes up and I like have to do it, I got, I'm going to do it. But uh, I think like he was like Kill Bill 3, Star Trek movie. Like those are like possible exceptions to this rule. Um, so I, I think in like 10 years, maybe he'll be like, I still got another one in me. But he's he's always said he's like, I'm very protective over my filmography. And I think as act directors get older, they get out of touch and he does not want to taint his other movies by having one bad movie. And so that's his whole philosophy is quality over quantity. If it was anyone else, I would be like, that's absurd bullshit. 
but he's been saying the same thing for more than a decade, more than yeah. 10 years. He's been like, this is my plan. And when someone said that repeatedly in every interview, they're asked about it. I kind of come around to being like, okay, maybe he is done with movies. I hope that's not the case. Of course, yeah. I would like him to direct movies until the day he drops dead. But as you noted, Eric, he has also said repeatedly, he's like, okay, I want to, I'm interested in doing limited series. I'm interested in potentially directing plays. So he's still going to be involved in the entertainment industry. I think a Quentin Tarantino TV show, like the bounty law show that was rumored to potentially mm. be his, his next project post film. That's super interesting that I would love to, to see his work, his stamp on a TV show. But uh, I, I got to believe too, or at least I have to choose to believe because that's the hopeful side of me that you guys are right. That in eight, nine, 10 years, there's just a lightning bolt of inspiration. And he has said multiple times he'd always like to do sci-fi, never quite got the chance. Obviously the Star Trek movie didn't end up happening. So I could see a return down the line in that genre for him to stretch one last muscle, but we'll see. Uh, his, his steadfastness worries me. He he's done so many just interesting things since once upon a time in Hollywood. Uh, there was that Uber show with Joseph Gordon Levitt on Showtime. I don't know if you guys watched it. He narrated it. I did not know that <laughs> fucking so bananas. Funny. It's just yeah, like, he has so such funny. an interesting career of just like, yeah, I'll just like do whatever. If it excites me, you know, it's like yeah. he has the freedom to do, whatever if he wants to go make a stage play he can if he he was talking about doing a stage version of reservoir dogs and a remake of reservoir dogs and all these like crazy ideas so whatever he does i'm there tv movie stage book uh audio book i don't (laughs) i don't give a shit i'll fucking be there I'm also going to assume that he's going to make a lot of on-camera appearances because remember he started his career as an actor he has said multiple times i'm an actor who discovered he could write i've always <laughs> wanted to be the star so i would not be surprised if he pops up in like character supporting character type roles as some sort of eccentric you know uh, uh side plot kind of guy and as we've seen in his own movies it's pretty good pretty good little character actor you know popping up in these small yeah. roles does does the idea of this movie pop if it, if it if this was his last movie just based on what you know right now does that excite you does that be like ah he's always said that i think once upon a time in hollywood was just like his last epic and then he's like the next one will probably be like an epilogue type of thing to his career is that uh, i described it also like, to someone I mean, else i'm like is this his fablemans you know kind of in a, in a sense yeah wow i love that i love that comp kate you know reading it at first i was like oh dude quint fuck off with this man you know what i mean like sure yeah and, you know, I just for it to be sort of a meta inward look about film criticism in it of itself to have it potentially be a both a period piece and like a loose biopic for a guy who is known at his peak, which I think still exists once upon a time is my third favorite film of his. So I don't think he's lost his fastball by any stretch. No, but he's been known for his insane plots. Kill Bill, Pulp Fiction, Res Dogs, Bastards, the list goes on and on and on. So for him to sort of, A, Once Upon a Time was much less Pulp Fiction-y than I thought it would be. It was like a hangout movie. I really thought that that was going to be more classic Tarantino, and it wasn't, and I still loved it regardless. But to him continue in that direction and seem to be scaling back even further and say, hey, not only am I going to take you to Cali in the past, but I'm not even going to use the exciting framework of the Charles Manson fear. It's going to be about a fucking typewriting journalist, you know? So like that, but then I know that 
Tarantino is that good that I would watch anything that he puts out and be hyped for it. The interesting thing is I remember when we were starting to hear about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood for the first time was he was he was at some sort of thing. Tom Cruise was in talks when it first started. Really? I remember that. Yeah. That was I didn't know that. That's cool. And that would be interesting. What if? <laughs> but wow, I want to But see he's that. too stupid to be that smart to sure. take that role. Sure. Sorry, Tom. I remember when we started hearing about that movie, we didn't know what the fuck it was. It was just like, all we knew was like, has something to do with the Manson family and that like era. And like, so when I remember hearing about that, I'm like, oh, he's going to center the movie around Charles Manson. And like, it's going to be like really fucked up and like weird and and whatnot. And then you watch the movie and it's just not. And Eric is also cooking food in the background. I love that. We we love (laughs) a good multitasker. (laughs) But uh, sorry. Um, uh... Sausage and peppers tonight for dinner, boys. (laughs) Gotta gotta saute. Yeah, you're just stirring in the middle of Cade's monologue. (laughs) But I, I, I'm sorry. Uh, The... (laughs) We didn't. We thought it was something else, I think. And then you watch the movie, and like the movie isn't not about the Manson family, but it is something else entirely. So like I, I'm skeptical of what they're, what we know right now, and that it could be something completely different and be more in like in the same way that Once Upon a Time was effectively about the Sharon Tate murder, but she's the third character, right? Exactly. That you know that could be the same thing, really. She could be reviewing a new film, and the director like hatches a revenge plot on her. You know what I mean? Like that is sort of where, yeah. Which is what I associate him with and hope for. Yeah. Cause like, who's the famous person who he's going to kill at the end? You know, like, is it Hitler? Is it Charles Manson? (laughs) Someone said Richard Nixon in our Slack chat at work, like something crazy. (laughs) So big brain galaxy stuff right there. (laughs) So this could be more than what meets the eye is what I'm really trying to get at here. It's much like Stephen King writing a new book. I don't really care what it's about. I'm probably going to check it out and I'm probably going to like it. Yep. Yep. Love that. All right, let's swing over to our reactions to the Oscars. Everything, everywhere, all at once. Cleaned up. It took home. Airbud down. We got an airbud down. Uh-huh. Airbud down. The dog. The dog that plays oh, oh. basketball. <laughs> we got an airbud down. I crossed earbud and airpod. And so I just murdered a dog. He's live got a career-ending injury. <laughs> um, That's cold-blooded. It, Pete is after you. It, it is the second A24 film to win Best Picture. I believe the first was Spring Breakers, right? Moonlight. No, but also, I learned this today. I never knew this. The first studio... To sweep, I think the the uh, the eight categories, top eight categories, or something like that. Here's what they've won: they won seven total, best picture, directing, editing, original score, and three of the four acting, best supporting actor, best supporting actress, and best actress. And um, the whale, and the whale is an A24 which is also movie A24. as well. Yeah, right. So ah, gotcha. Okay, yeah, right. So they, yeah, so they won all the above the line, which is just insane. And honestly, I think it's a combination of a few things. It's a long time coming for them who have curated a brand that, you know, there's a new A24 show, their first ever coming out on Netflix soon. It's not their first ever show. Well, I thought it's the first live action, maybe or something. No, there's they, a reason got, why I know got like about it. Dozen shows, Euphoria is an A24 show. That's right. Right. Well, point being is that I got as soon as I got the greeners for it, I checked it out because I knew it was theirs, and that was that. So they have established a brand that has culminated in like a film that's going to be mentioned alongside One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and <laughs> Silence of the Lambs, which 
when I saw this movie a year ago, I said this is a 10 out of 10. It's what film should be. And I've since probably put it in that at certainly my top 15, if not my top 10. So I am on board with this. I will say the Jamie Lee Curtis thing is fucking delusional and sort of the Oscars at their worst. It is the campaigning. This is sort of a mix of a campaign, whereas Jamie Lee Curtis was just being extra as hell for like three, four months straight. She is a legacy actress, so they gave it to her. Not only do I think, and B put it like this, not only is she not best supporting actress in her own film, I think she was the worst of the five. The fact that Banshees and Elvis and Tar all got shut out speaks to sort of a deeper conversation of where the Oscars are going that we don't really have time to talk about. Wherein those are all very traditional Hollywood Academy Award bait, right? You've got a biopic about an American icon. You've got a super serious character study. And then you've got sort of like a um, a play come to life. All of things that reek of sort of film snobbery. But then you've got this movie that's got a, a scene where a guy shoves a trophy up his ass. And that one best picture, I think that that is a very exciting verdict on not only where the Academy is headed, but where filmmaking is going in general. This is only their second film. And, you know, this could this will likely be the best one that they ever made. But what if it's not? And I think that the more... The more that A24 continues to do its thing, the more studios will follow in its footsteps and the more unique and creative projects will get like this. And then on the flip side of that coin, you look at, even though it's a franchise, a film like Scream 6, breaking records out the wazoo and out of nowhere, after two, three years of, is this the end of film? Mm -hmm. Movies, cinema, it's like fucking back as hell. And I think that's really exciting. Yeah, no, it's... (sighs) It, it is interesting to see if we're we're going to sort of talk about the idea that the Oscars are moving away from the traditional, uh, very serious, like a general mainstream audience probably isn't going to go seek out tar or something like that, you know, right? Um, it is interesting that they didn't put their weight behind Top Gun Maverick or, yeah, just Top Gun Maverick, I think. Like that, that movie won one award and it was for sound, which is great. But at the same time, I'm like, Really, I don't know if they have something against Tom Cruise because, like, there seems to be something going on there since he didn't even show up. I, I don't know what the whole fucking deal with that is. There was something about, like, who was it? Judd Apatow was re- yeah. reportedly working on jokes with Jimmy Kimmel and they were targeting Tom Cruise. And so he's like, I'm out. And that turned out not to be true. I don't know. It's a whole thing. But um, <clears throat> I am surprised that Everywhere All at Once was the one that, kind of swept i i thought there'd be a little bit more variety in everything but there it really took home everything all at once, <laughs> yeah, all at once. Um, i would yeah. just caution against making grand pronouncements as much as i love to do that you hope <laughs> no you you hope that everything everywhere's win is a sign that the academy is going younger and more diverse as has been their emphasis over the last five to seven years but you also got to remember 2017 uh, or no, sorry, 2018, the shape of water wins best picture. One of the first genre films to ever do it next year. It swings all the way to the opposite end of the spectrum and gives green book the best picture, the best picture. Yeah, yeah. Then, then the year after that, it swings back the other way, gives parasite the best picture. So you have to remember that. But that you know what that all came before, right? What do you mean? He's talking about COVID. Yeah, yeah, before This is a different world that we're in now. The entire system, I think, has been rewritten to its core. The track record suggests let's just give it a few years to see if 
uh, a trend is actually made because one win does not make a trend. But you know, they they have been trying to they and they had been successfully expanding their voting body before COVID. You know, particularly in the wake of Oscar So White and things like that. Hopefully, this is a sign that there is a greater purview of films under consideration, and that you know the Dark Knight rule, which actually had the adverse, the reverse effect, and only really championed even smaller movies. Now that they've reached a, a hopefully a better balance, where there's going to be some really elite tier blockbusters like a Top Gun Maverick, right alongside these smaller, more art house prestige films. Well, I just want to say, uh, fuck them for not doing Batman justice. Makeup uh, should have gone to Batman. And cinematography. Like, they got snubbed from nominations and didn't get the makeup Oscar. Uh, I think that is a crime, and they should apologize. That's all. Well, let me just say a quick on the <laughs> uh, Top Gun point. My 60-year-old parents, who are granted older than the median film goer, but are probably in line with the general Academy voter age, yeah. said they were like, yeah, Top Gun was cool, but the best movie of the year? And I think that there's still this idea that Best Picture needs to say something. Mm-hmm. And Top Gun, Maverick is so opinionless, there's literally no villain. Yep. So that is what I'd say to that. That's All valid. I have to say in response to that is, do, 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 do. <laughs> yeah. You know what? You're right. You, it makes me you make a valid feel point. alive. <laughs> no, I, listen, if I had an Oscars ballot, Top Gun Maverick would not have been my first choice, but it would have been in the, uh, I believe, top three in my in my in my voting among the best picture nominees. The The best thing I've ever heard said about that movie in particular is like when you aren't watching Top Gun Maverick, you know it's not the best movie ever, but when you are watching it, you feel like it's the best thing you've ever seen. And I'm like, that sums it up. And I mean, I feel like that's when it matters the most. So. (laughs) Yeah. All right, let's take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to break down the Last of Us finale. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. All right, The Last of Us Season 1 finale, Episode 9, Look for the Light. In a flashback, Ellie's mother, Anna, is bitten by an infected as she gives birth to her daughter. And, like, what I didn't know was scientifically possible. Like, I didn't know that they could just, boom, baby appears like that. Sure. I didn't know that that, I, that could happen. I don't know the anatomy but, of a woman, so. Yeah, seems like a, <laughs> seems like a rather stress-free, well, I actually, no, not stress-free way to give birth, but if you were able to remove the zombie aspect from it, that seems like a pretty good way to do it. This is there. If you, like, uh, we're going into labor on a roller coaster, you know, like <laughs> that seems like the way to do it. Yeah. It's dangerous. So, but... <laughs> so Anna is then found by Marlene who hesitantly takes Ellie and kills Anna at the latter's request. Boys, can we qualify this as a cold open? I think yeah, so. of course. Okay. So this is the first one that we've seen since we'll be you put up your hand, but I, it involves a character present in the main storyline. It doesn't matter. It's an opening before the credits. That's that's a cold. Okay, that's, I guess the way that I distinguish a cold open is how tangential it is to the direct plot. Like I just see 
a cold open in the traditional sense that so you're saying it as part of the show, except it's before the credits. Whereas Last of Us episodes one and two, those were like completely different points in time with characters that we would never see again. So that's why I asked, does this count? But all right, fair enough. I, I think a lot about like Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul have some really great cold opens where yes. like- I think a lot about the one with the pink bear in the swimming pool. What the fuck is this? What even is this? And you don't find out for quite a long time what that actually is. Till the finale. Till the finale. Yeah. I think you find out in like the season two finale and you don't find out what it is until the season three finale. It's a pretty crazy Like they show it for the first time in a previous season and don't resolve. Yeah, that's what I thought. That's what I thought. So I think about stuff like that where it's just like, this will come back and pay off at some point, but we don't necessarily know what this is right now. Sometimes. B, thoughts on the return of what used to be our favorite part of the show and what I think, coincidentally or not, has sort of coincided with the quality of it. I feel like Last of Us was on a decreasing slope of quality as this first season went on. And I think that the cold opens in episodes one and two and then Episode three was a cold open episode, right? It said, we're going to leave the main plot entirely. Mm. I think that it sort of grounded the series in a way that it needed because it provided context for like where we've came from and what we've lost and why it's so devastating. Because we don't really see that many people and that many infected. It just looks like a kind of quiet, open country. So the cold opens at the start were a reminder like, hey, there were a lot of people here and, and a lot of humanity lost. <laughs> I, I just you know I, I put this out in a tweet i think overall the last of us was really good with moments of greatness though not necessarily great throughout every single moment and i think something that i do as a uh, rubric exercise with genre series i i ask myself does the story work when taken out of the genre setting And because The Last of Us hyper-focuses on like this real perspective morality, like, okay, this is good and evil. It's always ambiguous. You can see both sides uh, of most issues. And that's layered over very, very intense character dynamics. I think it really works, even if you take it out of this, you know, zombie-infected world. And that's why I, I, I like it most. That's my favorite attribute about it. Uh, I, you know, it's like, I, I, I think judging and grading is, is always kind of reductive, but like, I don't know, probably like an 8.95 out of 10. For the series okay. of this episode. For, for, the, for the first season, maybe, maybe a 9.0. I will say that I just hope that the tangential cold opens return in season two, because I feel like the thematic impact and the visceral image of like American government bombing its own cities as a last ditch attempt to save face is some of the most like harrowing shit that you could put on TV. So for them to pass that by, especially when they had that uh, Bangladesh, where was it in episode two? Uh, Jakarta, right? Yep. That's it. Jakarta. You know, the impact of literally having one woman just talking about it and how terrifying that was. Like if they were to expand on that a little bit, I just feel like it would add such a devastation that this show needs because I think one of the main complaints that we've seen so far, it felt rushed and it sort of snuck up on us how rushed it felt. Mm -hmm. Um, Sorry, which element felt rushed? I think that the finale felt rushed, but then I think when you realize that you look back and you think, oh, you know, the back half has kind of felt rushed. Yeah. I, I, I think that the the second season has a lot of potential for interesting cold opens. Just thinking about the plot, the second game, there's a lot of distance between there's a time jump in the second game. I, 
as far as I understand, they're not going to do that or like they're not going to do it as extreme in, in the show uh, based on what they've already said. But um, that is a story with so many different layers. It is not as linear as this one. Like you think about Last of Us 1, it is they have to go in a pretty much a straight line East Coast to West Coast, right? That is a linear literally and thematically and whatever. Uh, the second game is like jumping throughout points of time, filling in gaps, showing you perspectives from other different characters and stuff. So they have a, they have an interesting in there for cold opens, though it will definitely not show you cities being bombed because they just completely move away from the, I know, I the know. apocalypse kind of stuff. Not the apocalypse stuff, but like the infection. Um, <clears throat> and I then, just feel like if you want to scare the shit out of us before you start your show, sure. that's no, the way to do it. <laughs> I totally agree with you. I totally agree with you. All right. So then, yeah, I think the only thing from this cold open is that it sort of gives us an actual definition, reason, explanation of how Ellie became immune. Kate, is this in the game as well or uh loosely um so the you you never see ellie's mom in the game she's only heard of you uh ellie actually carries a note around that her mom wrote to her uh when Mm. she was born and she's like i've only known you for a day and i hate kids but i love you like you have changed Mm. me despite i only knowing you for a day and it's not gonna last much longer and i hope you're strong and like it's it's really beautiful note and she gives her the pocket knife um so this is the first time we have ever seen her mom um, and it, it, with the bite on her leg happening kind of as she's coming out of the womb, it maybe gives a little more clarity as to how she was immune. It's still a little ambiguous. They don't give any direct answers, but it's like little more seeds. Um, but when Marlene kind of explains it to Joel, that's kind of what you I, get in the game too. The, my understanding was it is that she basically got vaccined, right? She got a tiny, tiny little bit of the disease inside <laughs> of her because sure. the- because the time between her mom getting bit and her cutting the cord is less than a minute. So maybe it's enough for some blood to pass through. Maybe it's not. But the, but that is sort of what I think that they're trying to explain it. They as. went the blade route. <laughs> yeah, you know? exactly. Blade, blades like inoculated. Oh, right. Like gets yeah. all the, the good stuff of being a vampire. None of the downsides because How she convenient. was bit as she was giving birth or right about to give birth. Right. I'm going right. to ask a really stupid question and you can laugh at me if you want. What is an umbilical cord? What does it do? <laughs> I, I think it feeds. I, I think it feeds the baby. Yeah, it's how okay. it's how the baby gets nutrients from the mother and what the mother is consuming. Gotcha. There you go. Okay. There you go. And welcome to our spinoff podcast, Science Bros. <laughs> Brought to <laughs> you by Manscaped. Can we do birds <laughs> and, and the bees next week? Idiots. <laughs> <laughs> All right. In the present day, Joel tells Ellie of his failed suicide attempt after his daughter's death. I said that last week. I said. How's this dude not tried to kill himself? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, have you played like the games, that. Eric? That's not yeah, in the do. games. Oh, there you go. I, as far as I know, uh, I, I've never, it, there is a line where they do find a guy who has killed himself and Ellie's like, oh, he took the easy way out. He's like, it's not easy. And so you're like, oh, you know, like you've, you've explored this path before. Right. right. Uh, all right. So <laughs> tells blah, blah. Firefly soldiers capture Ellie and knock Joel unconscious. After Joel awakens in a hospital, Marlene explains that doctors are preparing Ellie for surgery to produce a cure. And Joel immediately realizes the procedure will kill her and begins to protest. Marlene orders Joel to be taken away, but he kills his escorts, several soldiers, and the surgeon. Joel carries 
Ellie, who is still sedated from the hospital to a car to escape, Marlene intercepts them, stating that there is still time to find a cure, but Joel shoots her and kills her. When Marlene begs for her life, Joel says you'll just try to come find her. B, you were the only person who didn't see this coming. Thoughts? I think what I like most about this is that it raises the central question of like, oh, you know, was, was this the right thing? Was it not? And I've landed on this was absolutely the wrong thing to do because <laughs> the fate of humanity is more important than a single life. But this is exactly what I would that. have done in that situation. Okay. Yes. Okay. And that's right. what makes it interesting because uh, yeah. it's like, okay, I, I love the, the line in Interstellar. Humanity's affection rarely extends beyond our line of sight. We we will sacrifice everything for the people that we love, which is our greatest strength and our greatest flaw. It's like we we are the only species capable of creating such a relationship, and it can be the best part about being alive. You know, the family and friends and the loved ones, but it's also the thing that maybe makes us selfish to the point where our species shouldn't and couldn't continue forever. And I think that's really cool that they were able to essentially bury all of that into what is an extended action scene. So I'm going to save my sort of moral conundrum thoughts for a bit, but I think that what we see between the cold open and them getting knocked out is sort of an epitome of the rushed feeling that we sort of all felt, right? All right, B says, no, I'm going to make my case. They bring the pun book back, which I think is cheating, right? They all they had already used the pun book for like a character heartwarming moment. So for them to bring that back in sort of a muscle memory, hey, remember how cute it is when they read this book? That is a red flag for me. On top of that, Joel could have revealed that he tried to kill himself at any point. And I understand that their connection is much deeper after... After, I mean, would you say after she saved Joel's life or would you say after she goes through that like violent murder? Both. I guess the point that I'm trying to make is I felt that they took a lot of narrative shortcuts, i.e. Joel being like, hey, you want to play Boggle and learn guitar and and him talking about, you know, his the worst moment of his life and the pun book being back. And I just think it was sort of rekindering his hope in a bit too of a direct and literalized way. You know, Ellie says, and I don't know if this is a line from the game or not, Cade will, time heals all wounds, I guess. And Joel grumbles, it wasn't time that did it. And you know what I mean? It's like, we know that. We don't need it so literally explained to us. So I think that that is sort of um, but for a show that's been- that to Ellie. He's vocalizing it to Ellie for the first time. No, but but everybody understands that. But but Ellie, the character, isn't there yet. She's not on our, our level and, and aware of more more aware of his internal monologue. And so I, this is the culmination of this first season journey. This, and this is what a dad would do: try to play Boggle and try to cheer her up after a traumatic thing. But know, think I, about I, all the sort of character building beats that they hit in that fifteen minute span. They go from Joel trying to build her back up after a traumatic event, Joel revealing the the sort of deepest parts of his soul, and then bringing back in a plot device that was already used in but one scene I don't th- I think right before a- sort of the dramatic climax of him going on a rampage where I think if you spread that shit out over an entire episode and spend the time of them going through that last city together and really sort of space it out and instead of it being bonding, capture, rampage, it would have landed in a much cleaner fashion. I think if they did that, you would turn around and be like, this was kind of a filler episode like right before we get to the- When do I ever complain about filler? 
we, we both and, of us complain about Baylor except for Mandalorian, except for Mandalorian, because that's what it's fucking painful. That's I, what I, I think like. all of those were, were pretty organic to the relationship. I don't see any problem with bringing back the pun book. It's not. I'm like not it, saying it's that it's inconsistent. So I'm not saying it's inconsistent with the relationship. I'm saying the narrative pace in which they rolled it out made it made a lot of people not just kate and i saying why did that feel so rushed and i think that that is sort of the core of it right there that they zoomed through all of these like defining moments like i don't know if joel has ever told anybody he tried to kill himself and for him to say that before getting knocked out cold five minutes later it just it just doesn't feel as if it got enough time to breathe i, I don't kate? know i, I uh, think there's a, a pretty solid amount of, of time for that to let that sink in to see the reaction on ellie's face and to see joel's wall finally collapse in complete and utter debris as he lets her in i i think the moment sits there and then naturally as is a lot of narrative structures uh an emotionally revealing moment is followed up by like a, a kinetic moment where it's plot progression that that usually goes hand in hand but i, I listen I, I think a nine episode season with two flashbacks two flashback episodes, I can understand them, pe people complaining about the whole season being rushed a little bit, but I don't necessarily see that here, even though the ending is a bit abrupt. Okay. Um, what I think is interesting is the this last set chunk of the game is relatively short, uh, but for whatever reason, it lands better in the game. And I, I, I there's a couple of reasons, I think, but do you think that they didn't execute like from a directorial standpoint, his sort of rampage or I, I think <clears throat> the whole game as a whole, the story really gives you a lot of time to see the relationship build between Ellie and Joel. And it feels like there's just moments in the show, like key beats that they know were in the game that they're like, we got to put that in. We got to have yeah. that but it doesn't have the surrounding context that really strengthens that foundation. Like for example, earlier in the season, when they're going through the hotel with Tess and they're in the water and Joel says to her, you're a weird kid. Like yeah. it's those little kind of ones that exactly probably aren't the sort 100%. of home run. Hey, look how much these two love each other. And sort of those little building blocks over time. hundred percent. And there is still some of that, like you said in the show, but it is lesser. Um, one of my favorite parts of the game is during this bit, and you see it in the show, but it doesn't nearly it doesn't make as much sense in, in the show. Uh, throughout the entire game, there are all these points where you have to drag a dumpster, grab a ladder, grab a plank, whatever, to get up somewhere or move across somewhere, and you work with Ellie to do it. And then <clears throat> you have been conditioned to you walk up to a wall, you press triangle, you wait for Ellie, and you boost her up. This happens dozens of times in the game it is fucking annoying how much it happens but at the end of the game you get to this point and you see it in the show where he needs to boost ellie up somewhere and you go up and you press the prompt and you sit there and you wait and it does the same camera animation that's been doing the entire game and she doesn't come and you're like and joel stops and it's this complete disconnect from the conditioning the game has been doing this entire time and you're like where is she and you look over and she's sitting on a bench doing nothing just thinking and you're like oh this is really fucking with her. And it's a beautiful moment. And it, it's still in the show, but you don't have the prior context. And that stuff is so big in the game. Um, that's clever. But that's the, the, the difficulty of adapting it is. video games to TV or movies. Because no matter what the game is, and I understand The Last of Us is uniquely cinematic, and 90% yeah. of games aren't like that. 
because it's video games are an active medium. It's where very you're hard. Controlling, you're making all the decisions where viewing is obviously a passive medium. And for most games, again, not Last of Us, because clearly it was very sketched out. Most games, the central character doesn't have a super defined personality. So the the, the, the player can kind of graph their own personality, personality sure. on onto it and project themselves. Whereas in a, you know, a, a, a narrative such as a movie or a TV show, they really have to do a strong, heavy lift of developing a personality and a character and someone you want to go on a journey with that you're not necessarily putting yourself into those shoes. So I, I see how something can be lost in the translation, but absolutely. other things can be gained. Yes, absolutely. It, it is the frustrating thing of an ad, ad, knowing, being such a fan of the adaptation that you're like, I know this can't translate because it's not a game. Games have a unique way of communicating, and that goes for books and TVs and movies. Whatever you're adapting to and from, there are unique uh, pros and cons of all of that. And so it's like, it's hard because you're like, that's one of the reasons I love that story, but it can't work here because it's untranslatable because of that. And that's um, really clever what you said about like, the game conditions you with that triangle thing, and you don't realize you're being set up until- they Exactly. That. That, that, that's brilliant. Yeah, it really is. It's great. Hey, I will just say to your point about in the game when you have to pick her up, I turned to my girlfriend at that moment because it clicked to me too. I was like, oh shit, you have to do this in the game mm -hmm. all the time. And this is the first time that they've used it. Exactly. Um, and I've been playing the second game recently too. And there's a lot of that too. And there's even a moment in the second game <clears throat> where there's a, there's a flashback to like halfway between the time jump in the second game where Ellie has grown up a little bit more. And Joel's like, here, I got you. And she's like, I got it. And she just jumps up. And it's like, it's great because you're like, again, it's playing with your expectations. Like, oh, she's growing up. She's advancing past the need for him. In a physical sense. Exactly. It's really smart. It's, it's little shit that a lot of people are just gonna be like, okay, whatever. But like, when you really pay attention, that's a beautiful thing to, to play with your knowledge of game mechanics in a story way. All right. When Ellie wakes up, Joel lies to her and says that the Fireflies have already failed to develop. Wait, what? Am I tripping out here? Joel what? lies and tells her the Fireflies had already failed to develop. He tells them that they failed? They gave up. Okay. They, he, okay. His I whole thing is... The, like we, they ran the tests and found out that they, they can't do there it? There were all these immune people. They tried it. They gave up because they okay. couldn't figure Got it out. It. Got it. Okay. As they hike to Jackson, Ellie insists that Joel tell her the truth about what happened at the hospital. When he does so, she indicates that she accepts his word. I also want to note that she tells him for the first time about the fact that she had to kill her best friend. She doesn't mention the fact that she had romantic feelings for her. That is okay. She's a teenager. I'll give it a pass on that one. Um, <laughs> So this be, you know, this is the last of us thing. This is the big moment that the show has been building towards this sort of moral conundrum of, and I'm going to try to break this down a bit. Joel, in layman's terms, giving up the fate of humanity for a stranger girl that he just began to love and then lying to her about the truth, despite the fact that she, as previously indicated when she says this all can't be for naught was probably game. So that is sort of the Joel arc. And as you put it, you think it's wrong, but you would do the same thing. Mm -hmm. How do you feel about the lie here? So this is where it's cemented for me. I, I got the inkling very strongly as he's literally on a mass murder massacre spree. <laughs> and then this slammed it home. He has, he is fulfilling the classic archetype of a protagonist or, or, 
uh, a hero, but that's not the word I, I really wanted to use. It's more like the central character who does something that's irredeemable and they can be forgiven later on in the narrative, but that they can never be redeemed. And that ultimately results in their death as a character. That is the conclusion of their arc. And this cements to me that that has to be where, where Joel is heading because you can't come back from this. You can't come back from damning humanity and then lying and removing the choice, removing the agency from Ellie, who, who, as I believe Craig Mazin and Neil Druckerman said in the post, uh, post kind of precap, whatever, that she just wants a purpose in life. She, and she is a moral person trying to, trying to help. So when you combine those two things, plus adding in his, just his 20 year history of some questionable acts, there's only one possible ending for his character. To me, to, as as I'm viewing it as a as a TV movie fan, yeah, it's hard to respond to that. Um. Well, no, I'm going to try to make the case for Joel, right? Sure. Let's forget about the daughter thing for a second, right? Mm-hmm. Let's just assume that he is bonded with this girl and has understood this is a young life. This is a good girl. I have feelings for her in a father daughter way. And just the basic human feelings, right? That is a real tangible thing. Whereas what the Fireflies are proposing are a theoretical, hypothetical cure that is going to, quote, save humanity, which is a very indiscernible description of what might happen. How do you distribute it? How do you test it? How does it work? Is it going to work? All of these variables to potentially murder a child who didn't have a choice in the first place is morally wrong. Now, I understand you could sort of boil that down to its most simplistic form and be like, oh, well, it's the lives of humanity versus the lives of one person. But it's more complex than that because the lives of humanity is too conflated of an idea, especially 20 years deep into the apocalypse where every human you come into contact to is more of a threat than, than the thing that ended the species in and of itself. What reason does he have? But here's the thing. This is why he handled it poorly. Instead of raising all of those questions and trying to have a conversation Shoot with some. Marlene, <laughs> immediately goes full Kerbopolis Bob from yeah. Rick and Morty. I just love killing. I'll kill everybody. <laughs> like, I get it that they were like escorting him out, but he did not try hard at all to have a dialogue with them. And I understand. They didn't either, though. Yeah, no, they, they didn't, didn't either. either. But, but there was more he could have done than just immediately jump to... I'm going to kill everyone. Again, I understand she was being prepped for surgery. There was a time limit. Again, but goddamn, man. <laughs> yeah, Marlene even kind of tries to give him a second chance at the end. She's like, hey, like, you want to still, we can still do this. And he's like, well, no, I don't know. I mean, I, it, it's hard to be the one to dole out second chances when you're not the one with the gun. So I don't yeah. think it works like that per yeah, se. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, you're totally right. But yeah, with that information, you know, if I'm in Joel's shoes, I'm doing the same thing, knowing full well that one life is not worth everybody. Yeah, but I want to. Okay, go ahead. Well, I was just gonna say the interesting thing about Joel is like it's not a question of right or wrong. I think everyone can say objectively he is in the wrong, but that's not (laughs) that's not what it's about. It's (laughs) Eric's choking on his drink. Um, This guy made a fucking. Because it's like when you put it like that, it's like fuck. It's got a point. (laughs) Yeah, like really. I mean, like it is an objectively selfish decision, and that's that's not that's the point. Is like it's not about right or wrong. It's about what would you do. You know, it's that is the whole quandary. Uh, Morals go out the window. It's like 
your love as a person. I mean, you can replace this with a girlfriend, a boyfriend, whatever. Like the the person in question does not have to be just your daughter, though I do think that helps a lot with a paternal figure. Um, You will do anything for your love. Love makes you do extreme things. Uh, If your love is threatened or taken away from you, I mean, like even if you think about going through a breakup, you feel sick, you feel you can't eat, yada, yada, yada. And then you have to deal with the idea of loss. It's like, there's a lot that goes on in your brain. And Joel has not done any therapy in these 20 years. <laughs> He's done serious repression. Exactly. He's exactly. Worse. <laughs> he is, he is, uh, he tried to kill himself. He wears a watch that was not only just given to him by his daughter, but as a reminder of the day he failed because it is broken when he yeah. uh, was shot with his daughter. So it's a reminder of her and his failure. And he wears it. And I'm writing about this right now. So I'm, I'm going to speak poetically here. He wears it like oh, a, yeah, dude. a broken heart on his sleeve. And it is just like very, very, uh, he can't get away from it. And so now 20 years later, he projects his daughter on this little girl and says, I have a second chance here. I have a second chance to save my love and he doesn't deal with the trauma. You know how you're like not supposed to go into another relationship after you get out of another one? That's just yeah. like a bad idea because you don't resolve the feelings there. That's what he's doing. He never resolved the feelings. He's just filling the void with someone else. That is going to lead to a kind of a one-way relationship between him and Ellie because he is now investing more in her than she can in him. And she's like, this is kind of weird, dude. <laughs> so... <laughs> And I'm glad you mentioned selfish with that beautiful, eloquent, articulated uh, explanation right there because Kate is learning from the masters. The teacher is becoming the, the master. Or the, I've had I 10 years to think up. about this, Eric. I have been thinking about this shit for 10 years. But it, it's so important too because by removing Ellie's choice, he is essentially saying, I'm doing this not necessarily to save her but so I don't lose again. So I don't feel that way again. And that is selfish. It may be morally understandable. Oh, I'm, I'm protecting a 14 year, innocent 14 year old girl's life, but we know the reason behind it. So he doesn't have to go through that trauma and loss again, which again, you can understand, but that's what makes it such a cool uh, uh, conclusion is that it is this morally ambiguous enigma wrapped in a ethically unclear puzzle and buried into someone's heart. You know, it's this whole thing that is a a thematically rich ending point that sets up season two very interestingly. Why not just be like, Ellie, look, they were going to murder you without giving you a choice. I think you deserved one. Is it his selfishness and knowing that she might opt for that and be like, yeah, yes, kill my ass? That's got to be it, right? Yes. I think or, it's... Or is he just a terrible liar? <laughs> I think it's, if I tell you the truth, I'm going to lose you. And that just negates everything I've just done. Because if I tell you the truth and that I just killed all these people and saved you and then robbed you of whatever you wanted, then you're going to walk away. And then it's just, I killed all those innocent people and then I still I still come out with the same result that I didn't want. And that's equally as hard. I mean, what's worse, uh, letting the person you love die or letting the person you love hate you because of something you did? Like, that's that's a hard thing to reckon with. It's a hard, yeah, it's a really sure. hard choice. I want to end by asking you guys two questions each. Is Joel a bad guy? Yes, uh, but he's an understandable guy. 
B? Excuse me. I was also going to say yes. I think it was last week or the week before where a kid, I asked you what his body count was. And you said between 50 and 70. And listen, again, the apocalypse, <laughs> the apocalypse accounts for what? Very specific. 30, <laughs> a, a ceiling of 30 bodies. After that, you're just enjoying it, man. Yeah. <laughs> and then is Joel a villain? Oh. It's a good two-parter. I, I mean, that goes back to the, is he in the right or wrong, right? Like, he is wrong, but again, it's like, I mean, yeah, he, yeah, he is the villain because he, he's he, all right. So the whole thing is like, he doesn't want to save the world because Ellie is his world. That's all that matters to him now at this point, Ellie is his world. The rest of them can go fuck themselves. And he is now, there are all these other parents that have kids that are now at risk of dying and getting this disease. And he has robbed those parents of a healthy, happy life because of his selfish decision. He's not a villain in the traditional sense, but he is yeah. absolutely a cautionary tale. Uh, we have to remember just a few episodes ago too, he he murdered a, an injured teenager who was on his back surrendering. Mm -hmm. And that could have been avoided. He's doing what's necessary in this world to an extent, but it's a cautionary tale because when you lose your humanity surviving, are you really still living? It's deep. Thanks, buddy. I think it's fun. <laughs> no, I agree. Just, yeah, to, 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 to just kind of, you know, tie into your guys' hits bong monologues. You know, Joel is a sort of case study in like the more you open your heart, the more potential for monstrosity you have. You know what I mean? Like he was a largely subdued, I don't give a fuck about anything, let alone my own life for a long time. And now as he is rediscovering his humanity, that's also making him more of a monster, which loops back into the point of, is humanity worth saving at all? And no. so the reason that I wanted to ask you guys, is he a bad guy? Is he a villain? Because what have we been doing on TV for the last 20 years? Difficult men. You're Walter yeah. White. <laughs> you're Tony Sopranos. This is the same fucking thing. And I think that the fact that that conversation hasn't yet come up goes to show how gorgeously this series blended genre thrills with traditional TV arcs because Joel is effectively a Walter White type character in reverse, a Tony Soprano in the mirror, a whatever the fuck his name from Mad Men is. Backwards. Don Draper. He is sort of, yeah, Don Draper. He is sort of at the same time perpetuating, but also countering the difficult men arcs we've seen wherein those guys became more monsters as their hearts hardened. Joel's is starting to soften him up, but he's having the same response. Finally, before we close out today's show, I just want to point out that the events of the second game are going to take place over multiple seasons. Cade, you could probably speak to that best. Thoughts? As the right call, because I mean, we've already kind of talked about like, eh, this could have been a little longer, maybe had a, an episode or two more to really dig deep. And I've already said already, the second game has like multiple perspectives, jumping around timelines. Like it is a dense game and it is not linear and it is a complicated story. And it's already very controversial among the video game fans. So if you want to do it right, and I don't think they're going to like change anything about the core beats, but like, if you want a, a chance to maybe like, be like, Oh, well we could have put that here and done that a little bit better uh, to really emphasize our point doing it across two maybe three seasons i imagine just two but two seasons is probably the way to do it especially because the game is kind of structured in that way i don't want to give everyone anything away but it is it is a game that is directly split in half 
Eric will know well, what I mean you, by that. <laughs> what, what the perspective changes are in the second game on the show before. Uh, have I mentioned it? Yeah. Um, that, I don't. That, 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 yeah, no, you did. That we, and then we flip around, and it's them the whole time, and we're like, oh, now we feel for them. Yeah, yeah, that's basically the idea. Yeah. Which is awesome. That that's yes. Such a, like <laughs> I I see how why everyone says the Last of Us is is like more movie and you know more TV show than it was a video game. Yeah, it's a tale in empathy and understanding and perspective. And whether that works for you is up in the air, but I like the idea that they're wrestling with these ideas because it is an interesting thing where it's like, we're not going to be definitive. We're just going to give you the objective situation and make up what you want, like you do with Joel. And I think that's a great idea. And then just quick question for you, Cade. Now that HBO has elevated the video game adaptation to new heights, what do you think the next video game adaptation could be that is that is like an elite level thing? Not just like, oh, that was like Francis a Lawrence's too. Bioshock. What was that? Francis Lawrence's Bioshock. Bioshock That's the one has that I pinned, real potential. I have pinned my, yeah, I have pinned my hopes on Bioshock for a long, long time. So is this a movie or the TV third game? Show? It's going to be a Bioshock, Netflix movie. Yeah. But Francis Lawrence is attached to like a million things at this point. Yeah, so I don't we'll really see. Know. Uh, they've been trying to make a Bioshock movie for a long time. Um, that is a really good one. Just philosophically, politically, very interesting. And then uh, Metal Gear Solid could be cool, but I don't know if you can do that in the movie. And then uh, the God of War series is very similar to Last well, of Us. They're doing something. Recent, I think yeah, Prime is, Amazon, right? Amazon's doing yeah. a God of War series. So, um, And that will directly adapt kind of the Last of Us inspired God of War games that have come out in the last few years. So that has potential. The pressure's on them. Um, and then if, if I was just saying like my personal pick of like something I'd really like to see, um, I think if someone could do it right, Red Dead Redemption 2 is a great game that you could literally tell over like six that's seasons. It. Like that's it right there. That's a fucking HBO. Story. That is your Westworld, except yeah. you don't fuck it up. Yeah. Uh, all right. Make sure to follow Cade at Cade underscore Onder and all of his great work at comicbook.com. Follow Brandon at great underscore Catsby and all of his analyzing at Parrot Analytics. Follow me at Eric Italiano and the podcast at Postcred Pod. The schedule for the upcoming days is a little up in the air because Mando, now that The Last of Us is done, we'll probably be potting with Mando so you could expect future episodes to drop on Wednesdays and Thursdays. I don't know when we're going to cover the next episode of The Mandalorian since you're hearing this podcast right now. Maybe we'll do it next week. Maybe we'll do it this week. Either way, you've got that to look forward to. I also have an interview with John Wick director Chad Stileski. I'm talking to him for 20 minutes on Thursday. I'm also interviewing the male cast of Yellow Jackets next week. So that's the coach who lost his leg. That is the husband married to the main character, Melanie Lewinsky. And that is the teenager that is stranded with all the girls who basically gets to fuck all of them, it feels like, <laughs> towards the end. Uh, all right, y'all. We will talk to you either in a few days or next week. Peace. <laughs>